This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international programme of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett, and today I'm joined by Amy Nelson. Hi, Amy. How are you? Hi, Duncan. I am doing fabulous. So glad to be on Primitive Culture with you again. It's great to have you back. We recorded once before when you were actually in London uh, visiting, uh, but a couple of years ago, that must be now. That was two years ago. Was it really? Wow. Remember? Wow. Yeah, I sent you the pictures. I'm like, I can't even believe of course, it's been right. two years. Like the Facebook um, yep. on this day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When we went to see Beyond at the Albert Hall. That was an amazing, uh, yeah. amazing experience. Yeah, yeah. Great trip. Um <sighs> when we were able to travel i mean i don't know oh. about you i think your lockdown's easing a little bit we were meant to be in the south of france this week so oh, you know, dear. <laughs> slightly miserable uh sitting in our cottage at home but you know when you could, could be, be yes yeah, south of france oh. exactly it could be by the pool you know <laughs> <laughs> but hey anyway um well amy obviously uh many of our listeners know you from your your work on trek fm several shows on trek fm but i think you've also recently uh been working on some other podcast networks as well is that right well yes uh i'm over on united federation of podcasts which uh brandon shay mutella ken trip zach moore and tony robinson started And so I'm over there doing all good things, which is a little bit different because now I get to talk about all the series and all the Star Trek, whereas on Trek FM, I'm just really honing in on the next generation. So that has been an interesting project to sort of open up. And we're doing a lot of uh, comparing and contrasting uh, episodes from different series. And that has been really fun to see the similarities between ideas i love the fact that with this show we can kind of cover the whole of star trek i think i i would find it i mean i I love all the individual shows as well but um i don't know i I like being able to jump back and forth i sort of try to keep our schedule fairly mixed in terms of it doesn't always work sometimes we end up doing three ds9 apps in a row or whatever but uh, i sort of try to keep a bit of variety in there and uh, you, you know hit those different bases um, so I'm sure that's great. I feel, given what we're talking about today, though, I ought to ask you, I mean, 
you know, you, you're an associate producer of the show Primitive Culture. You're a, a Trek FM host going back further even than I am. With you working on these other podcast networks, should we be questioning your loyalty, Amy? Should we be, you know, wondering, are you, are you working with subversives? Are you working with foreign powers against us? Uh, on grounds of the Fifth Amendment, I refuse to answer. <laughs> I'm feeling like a witch hunt here. <laughs> You're taking the, the seventh guarantee. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Very wise. Very wise. That's that's clearly the correct answer. Um, what we're looking at today is uh, a TNG episode. You're talking about Next Gen, uh, the drumhead and the inspiration behind that episode, which I think really is sort of twofold. On the one hand... The, uh, the the witch hunts in inverted commas of the McCarthyism era, the House Un-American Activities Committee in the 1950s in particular in the United States. But also, I think, kind of underneath that, there's also um, the play The Crucible, which was the Arthur Miller play also written around that time about the witch hunts in Salem back in the 17th century, but very much in the same vein as Star Trek doing kind of rip from the headlines allegory. Basically, he was writing that play as a way of commenting on what was going on contemporaneously at the time. So I think when you have in the drumhead Picard making references to uh, witches being burned at the stake, there's a kind of illusion there. Uh, I mean, even if the play isn't kind of explicitly referenced in the episode, nor indeed is McCarthy explicitly referenced in the episode, I think both those things are kind of part of what's feeding into it. The historical, um, the the sort of recent, well, not not particularly recent, but the kind of within living memory history of the 1950s, but then also the kind of fictionalisation of this much earlier period in history as well. Yeah, absolutely. There is a strong reference, as you said, and you had mentioned watching The Crucible or reading The Crucible, and I was like, oh, shoot, I don't have enough time to read it. But I did uh, go and watch the movie. It was on, found it on Amazon Prime, and with Daniel Day-Lewis and Winona Ryder, and watching it the whole time through, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is exactly what we are talking about with the drumhead Just, I'm sure we'll get into it, but just what I found so fascinating was the excitement and the the chaos that came up, and then the one scene, the excitement of the hanging, and how everyone was just on board with hanging these people, and it was just so stark when you look at where we started to where the public opinion had gone, uh, very scary. And just sort of with comparing it to the drumhead, right? We've got Picard on board, ready to go. Admiral Satie, we're so glad you're here. I'm going to be working with you. And then to all the calling all the witnesses and then making it open and public and very chilling, scary. It's definitely it's a chilling story. Um, I mean, it's interesting. You you saw the movie. I've never actually seen the movie version. I went and had a, a read of the play, which I read way back in school. And I think the the film, I assume, opens it out a little bit because the play. I mean, it's a wonderfully intense, amazing play, but it is quite stagey in the sense that often you're in a room where that is slightly aside from where the action is or whatever. I mean, you don't, you don't see hangings on stage. You don't sort of see any of that. I mean, you probably could in a production of it, but it's not, it's not there right in the text, if you know what I mean. Um, so the focus is very, it is a bit like a crucible. It's, it's very kind of claustrophobic. It's very kind of intense, but it is 
scary and it's scary in particular i think because of just the the madness of it i mean not just the madness of believing in the devil and all these things going on but the kind of um the mad position that people are put in where basically they're forced to uh your only way out is to confess to something that you're not guilty of so you get all these people confessing who actually they're just that everyone is just going along with the system everyone is just doing what they're uh, what they feel they have to do. And then you have this one man, John Proctor, who is kind of the, the central figure, I suppose, who's sort of agonizing over his integrity. And he, he is a real man of integrity. I mean, watching Picard in the drumhead, you sort of think there's definitely a parallel there with this one man who's kind of not going along with it, who's going to object to it. Although at the end, he has a sort of crisis of conscience. You know, what should he do? Should he die for this principle that seems so utterly kind of mad by that point? Although it's interesting, I think Picard is he sort of fulfills the same role but Picard has no there's not there's not too much anguish to it for Picard I mean Picard is kind of anguished in the drumhead in terms of he's depressed at what he sees happening around him but he's not in any way compromised himself although uh the admiral is saying basically questioning his sanity saying you know have you fully recovered from the Borg questioning his judgment saying you know why did you break the prime directive you know kind of trying to sort of character assassinate Picard she doesn't get anywhere because Picard is so sort of unassailable John Proctor I think is quite interesting as a character because he is a sort of fallen man he sinned he's had this affair and one of the reasons that he that the situation gets as bad as it does in a way is because of his reluctance to reveal the fact that he's had this affair and then in fact his wife who knows about the affair but is trying to protect his honour is sort of called in to corroborate and she denies so she lies for him as she thinks and then kind of condemns them both so there's this sort of interesting element in that version of the story of the sort of the flawed hero in a sense the the hero who does have something to be ashamed of or something to hide or something that's not kind of perfect about them um whereas in the next gen version you, you know with picard he's very much the sort of unassailable hero somehow more more kind of perfect that the most per- i mean he, he is in a sense the most perfect character in star trek arguably and never more so than in this episode i mean this is one of those episodes that is always on lists of like top five top ten picard episodes because this is picard his sort of most um inspirational and and kind of decent and you know straight down the line sees it for what it is you know uh an honest person yeah going to what you're saying uh and we had talked about another article why i wrote the crucible which was published in the new yorker and one of the things that really stood out to me was that he was saying with proctor like he's the man that is the most reasonable but yeah he's coming from this place of guilt, right? He committed adultery. So we've got this guilty man who's the only one who's really seen what's going on. And like you say, with uh, the drumhead, Picard isn't the guilty partner. He's like you said, he's infallible. And so to see those play off each other, I think it actually makes a little more sense in the crucible, like you're saying, because then they're going after his adultery and not going after his what he's seen as happening with the witch hunt. And so it's easy to do, I guess, like this red herring, like they did in the drumhead with Simon Tarsus. Like, well, you lied on your application because you've got Romulan heritage. So that you're guilty there, therefore you must be guilty elsewhere. And so I think that is a, is a stronger tie-in, 
of this sense of being guilty in one place. Therefore, there has to be you're hiding something in the other. It's that sense, I suppose, of a witness being uh, destroyed on the stand, cross-examined and, and found, you know, if the witness has lied about one thing, then their entire testimony sort of gets thrown out. And I suppose that's that's the case against Simon Tarsus, basically, is, well, you lied about one thing. How do you know? How do we know you're not lying about something else? Even though the prosecutor or, or whatever he is, the, the Betazoid kind of investigator is deliberately lying himself you, you know is uh you know making claims which he knows are not true he he tells Tarsus that the um something was taken from sickbay one of these chemicals he had access to and that was involved in the explosion in the, in the warp core or whatever um and he knows that that's not true it's a complete fabrication um and that reminded me in some ways of, of the, the sort of theater of you know not only the salem trials but also with mccarthy you know waving these lists around uh these lists that you know the numbers on them seem to kind of go up and down no one was ever able to inspect the lists you know none of his evidence with it was ever really uh made available but he he enjoyed the kind of theater of it um and i watched a documentary you recommended a pbs documentary um american experience is the is the series they did an episode on mccarthy which was very interesting and they had an interview with his secretary who said that he basically became intoxicated by the attention so there was this sense of the kind of real uh theater of it and i think you get that absolutely in the drumhead as well with admiral Satie, that she you know that moment where she opens the doors to the room and she says to picard oh it's not good to have these hearings behind closed doors but you know that's not really what it's about this is about kind of getting the rabble into the room in a sense turning it into a piece of spectacle uh because that's where she feels comfortable is sort of almost on stage kind of performing this role and crushing these people in this very public very humiliating way uh which again was something that absolutely was was part of um McCarthy's kind of project i mean to the extent that um at the end of the kind of McCarthy period at the point where he he sort of lost control of things there was this very interesting exchange between him and um a kind of opposing counsel he was they were investigating the army at this point and the army counsel who was a man called joseph welch um was uh they were sort of arguing back and forth um and welch demanded that mccarthy hand over one of these uh sort of some of this documentation that he kept kind of referring to, he, he asked him to hand it over. And instead of agreeing or refusing to do that, McCarthy went on the attack, uh, basically saying that a young man who worked at Welch's legal firm had kind of communist uh, associations in his past, that basically he'd been a member of a particular guild which had been linked to the Communist Party. Um, and what Welch basically replied and said, yes, I... I found that out six weeks ago when I was preparing for this. That's why he's not on my legal team. This is a guy who worked for him, but he had, you know, decided not to bring with him because he'd done his sort of due diligence on him and found this link and decided, okay, I don't want him here. Um, so in other words, so it's not relevant. McCarthy sort of wouldn't drop it. And then Welch got to this point where he, he famously, he, he said, I've, I've got the line here. He said, Senator, may we not drop this? Uh, we know he belonged to the lawyer's guild. Let us not assassinate this lad further, Senator. You've done enough. Have you no sense of decency, sir? And that's the kind of, um, um, the, the key line that I think almost that was the final nail in McCarthy's coffin to some extent was this direct uh, and this was all televised this was on TV people were watching this this guy basically saying you have no decency what you're doing is wrong and specifically what you're doing in attacking the character of this young man who's not even here who's not even relevant very much I mean not not exactly the same with Simon Tarsis but I feel there's a definite link there of this young man whose kind of career is being destroyed 
and who's not even uh the evidence against him is not even really the thing that is notionally being investigated the the sabotage the espionage all they've got on him is that he lied once on a form and that he's he's understandably kept this um particular secret and and that was the case with many of the people that McCarthy was investigating as well that they were um you know notionally he was investigating espionage but really all it came down to in most cases was membership of an organization or uh, even something looser than that kind of a, a association with certain people with certain views or whatever in the past. Um, and yet that could almost be, th- th- that would almost be enough in this kind of climate in the absence of any evidence of genuine wrongdoing. It's interesting to see that progression, like you said, and then finally it's like, okay, you, you're ruining this decent man. And where is your decency? Because up until then, like all of like McCarthy and Admiral Satie, like their reasons for doing this seemed reasonable. It was logical. Um, Like in that documentary with uh, McCarthyism, he starts going after those who are in government offices well, we don't want communism in our government. Makes sense. And then he goes after the libraries and the books that are in government-owned libraries. Well, that makes sense. You don't want to, you know, have communism and people reading about it and da da da. And then he's going after teachers and lawyers and professors. We don't need them teaching about communism. And so you can almost see he's making these arguments that are almost believable. I mean, hindsight gives us 2020 vision. Um, but Admiral Satie does exactly the same thing and even goes so far as to sort of justify why she is using her empath and sort of calls Picard out on it, which I always find interesting. And Picard's like, you can't condemn this man just based off of a feeling. And she's like, well, don't you use your counselor, Troy, to give you advice and to advise you and to direct you on your actions? I'm doing the same thing that you do. You know, so it's her steps are very rational as she goes along, which parallels what I think McCarthy does, you know, in the 50s. Absolutely. It's interesting when you mentioned the the thing about the the libraries, it struck me one of the points that was made in that documentary as well was that McCarthy didn't summon the librarians, even though the issue was what was being held in these public libraries, uh, that he thought, uh, presumably he thought putting a load of librarians on the stand would be kind of boring. So again, going back to this idea of theatre and making it as dramatic as possible, he summoned the authors because many of the authors were quite well-known writers, uh, Langston Hughes, Dashiell Hammett, you know, these were kind of household names um, and he could get them up there and there would be a kind of spectacle value in pulling in all these names. Just as in the sort of earlier era, I mean, the House on american Activities uh, committee had existed even before McCarthy had got involved in it and there was the whole blacklisting of Hollywood and so on that was kind of going on earlier and again um, you know the kind of entertainment value as much as anything else of kind of pulling in well-known names and sort of destroying their careers on the on the stand ruining people effectively for their past or present beliefs uh, and associations more than any kind of I mean this was in the context of you know there there were there, there were some spies, there, there, there was espionage going on, but really he wasn't in the business of digging up spies as much as he was in the business of kind of digging up anyone who 
had any sympathy with communism or any kind of, uh, you know, political beliefs that were not sort of acceptable at that moment of the Cold War, obviously, and uh, punishing them and sort of humiliating them uh, for that. It also struck me there's this, um, in Arthur Miller's script of The Crucible, which I was reading, it's very interesting. There's a load of um, material in the script, which is not actually part of the play but rather than it, it, it's sort of as if he's written a kind of introduction to the play but instead of putting it before the play he actually intersperses it in amongst the the play script so when a character comes in he'll give you sort of a page of background information on them or, or a little sort of mini essay about some theme that's going to come out in the scene or whatever but there's a section quite a long section uh in the about 30 odd pages into the um into the play script where he writes about this idea of diabolism and he kind of draws the connection very directly between um, the Salem witch trials and the situation with McCarthyism as it was taking place at the time that he was writing. Um, and, and he writes again absolutely about this in the um, essay that you mentioned why I wrote The Crucible, essay for The New Yorker, I think, which is well worth reading as well, um, that he wanted to write about contemporary issues, but he didn't he didn't feel he wanted to do it kind of too on the nose. He didn't want to do it um, directly or, or that would be tricky as a, as a creative, as a writer. And having seen, you know, how much others had been punished, had been, had suffered uh, for kind of expressing that, their views one way or another so he found this way of writing about it in relation to this historical story that he researched um, instead but the connection that he drew between them was that he said that basically america in the 1950s uh, and particularly mccarthy's kind of vision of america was in the grip of contemporary diabolism he called it so basically a kind of um obsession with the devil and with evil and with kind of these very binary ideas of sort of good and evil and and, and the other being this terrible thing. Um, and he saw that as something that was kind of inherent in the Cold War to both sides. Um, he says, in the countries of the communist ideology, all resistance of any import is linked to the totally malign capitalist succubi. And in America, any man who is not reactionary in his views is open to the charge of alliance with the red hell. Political opposition thereby is given an inhumane overlay, which then justifies the abrogation of all normally applied customs of civilised intercourse. A political policy is equated with moral right and opposition to it with diabolical malevolence. Um, so there's this sense that, uh, that, that, you know, McCarthy is seeking out evil. He's not just, he's not seeking out spies. He's seeking out kind of evil. And this sense that really what's being, uh, interrogated and what's being on trial is something within people's hearts, within their souls, within their, uh, deepest beliefs more than any actual actions that they've taken. He goes on to say, normally the actions and deeds of a man were all that society felt comfortable in judging. The secret intent of an action was left to the ministers, priests and rabbis to deal with it. But when diabolism rises, actions are the least important manifests of the true nature of a man. So again, you've sort of got this idea that um, it almost doesn't matter what someone may have done, what kind of alleged crimes they may or may not have committed, what it comes down to is, are their beliefs acceptable? Uh, and if those beliefs are wrong, then that's the kind of real danger. And by the time we get to Simon Tarsi's in Star Trek, it's not so much um, his beliefs. It's not, there's no suggestion really that the Romulans are offering a different ideology or a different kind of uh, economic system or a different um, set of beliefs to sign up to in the way that 
it is sort of hinted at in the earlier episode, the defector, that there's this idea of sort of the potential for people to defect back and forth and to kind of, because uh, there is that character who's a kind of Federation citizen who goes over to the Romulans. We're supposed to believe that they have something in their society that kind of appeals to him. When it comes to Simon Tarsus, it is really more a question of biology. It's more a question of heritage. And there's an element of, I think we could say, uh, you know, racism in the way that Worf uh, behaves in this episode because it, it, you know, it turns out to be about, because it's about the Romulans basically. And, and he has this kind of legacy of hatred towards the Romulans because of what's happened in his own family. And there is this sense the Romulans are not to be trusted. I mean, the Romulans are very much the kind of Cold War enemy in that sense. They're, they're mysterious. They're behind their neutral zone. We don't know that much about them. Uh, we don't really trust them. We know they're quite shady one way or another. They, are the sort of people who have spies everywhere, as we've seen in previous episodes. And therefore, the fact that this guy has some Romulan blood in him uh, is almost enough to place him under suspicion. There's something devilish, there's some, something you, you know evil almost about him is almost the suggestion there in those pointy ears. I'm glad you brought that up because watching this, the drumhead again, and again, you you pick up with Star Trek, you pick up different things that you have missed I mean, I've been watching Star Trek forever, and it just really hit me the at the beginning when they were first going after Jordan, the Klingon, and they're like, well, my security officer is a Klingon. And it just made me realize when people say, well, my best friend is black, right? And it just, and especially during this time of Black Lives Matter and George Floyd, like, well, my best friend is black. Well, my security officer is a Klingon, so there must be no racism. Like, that used to work before, but what I'm seeing with Simon Tarsus saying that why he lied is because he didn't trust the system. And when we look at racism, especially now, and how institutionalized and systematic it is, Tarsus didn't trust to put his own identity for fear that he wouldn't get in to Starfleet. He didn't trust the institution to look past that because there obviously had to have been previous people that have been denied or whatever it was. But the fact that he didn't trust Starfleet goes to the heart of, I think, where we are at, especially now with this day and age with racism. And there's definitely a link there insofar as, okay, for Tarsus, it's something about his genetic heritage. Uh, for the people with communist associations, it's something about their, um, you know, political views. In the crucible, there's an element of kind of, there's sort of a charge against Proctor. Does he go to church often enough? And, and he sort of says, look, I'm a Christian. I don't like this preacher. I don't really appreciate him. He's been asking for loads of money and bought gold candlesticks. I don't, I don't get on with him. And there's kind of antagonism there, but I am a Christian. I do believe in God, etc. But there's again, this sort of question, well, are, you know, is, is he kind of an upstanding Christian man in the way that he should be? Um, so, so there's this kind of link, I suppose, with, with this overreach into people's personal lives, this overreach into things that really are, should be their own business that maybe isn't the business of the state or the business of the police. There's also this aspect of Worf. I mean, 
throughout next gen really uh when it comes to romulans Worf is a racist you can't really get away from that and maybe he's got a reason insofar as okay you know his family were killed and etc and and the discommendation and all this stuff to do with this kind of romulan plot and so on he's sort of got reason to dislike romulans in the same way as you might say kirk has a reason to dislike klingons in the undiscovered country but both those characters are basically racist um, and we see that with Worf you know refusing to help the Romulan who needs medical assistance from him and so on we see in this episode actually aside from Worf being a racist I mean I was quite struck given what's going on at the moment with the protests and the police brutality and so on we see this episode opens with a little bit of police brutality from Worf who basically is stonily silent when he's escorting Jodan through the corridors of the Enterprise basically in public as soon as he gets him in a private context within his court Quarters, he goes for him he punches him twice basically i mean and this is a character we're supposed to love and and you know think is this kind of decent upstanding guy which you know for the most part wolf is but that struck me slightly differently watching it today than maybe it would have done even a few weeks ago somehow you, you know when we've witnessed all these this video evidence repeatedly of um you know police brutality uh you know in particular in america but also here in the uk there have been videos coming out recently and, and so on and of course remembering that the ones that happen to be caught on video are the absolute tip of an iceberg um so that did kind of strike me that there is an element in the drumhead version of this story there is a kind of uh race element going on here and it's maybe not totally overt it's sort of slightly beneath the surface but it's definitely there when it comes to this idea of the Romulans and you know what do the Romulans represent and if you think if you go all the way back to the original series when they introduced the Romulans in Balance of Terror they introduced them in a moment of kind of racial tension you had this uh guy who was sent back uh, or was basically it was told off anyway by Kirk and told you know you keep your bigotry in your quarters there's no place for it well <laughs> warfare keeps his uh brutality in his quarters <laughs> but you know there's this idea I suppose again this idea almost that I mean I've always thought it's a bit of a funny line that Kirk's line there but I suppose he's sort of saying look I can't help it if you privately hold reprehensible views but there's no way I'm letting you voice them on the bridge of my starship you know there's a kind of element of um what's acceptable what's not acceptable and in a way Picard is doing the same thing in this episode with Satie really as he's kind of saying I you know I'm going to shut this down I'm not having this this is not happening on my ship you, you know this is a witch hunt basically this is not uh this is not an acceptable process and I do not want it to take place here. And he, he's pretty firm on that almost from the get-go, to be honest. He's, he's always the one sort of saying, you know, I'm not sure about this. I think we're kind of overstepping. We're overreaching. We're doing, you know, we're going further than we should be doing. We don't have just cause. We don't have grounds for this. Uh, reminding people this man is innocent until proven guilty. You, you know, always kind of trying to put the brakes on when you've got this sort of runaway justice machine almost that is kind of barreling along i mean in the case of mccarthy you know it was it wasn't just one person but it was largely one person kind of there was an air an element as i say of theater there was a kind of personal motivation there's also just this sense of kind of once you whip people up into this kind of a frenzy into this kind of hysteria uh certainly what you see in the crucible with the witch trials is the the danger of that once you kind of it's it's impossible to kind of backtrack. And there's a point in the second half of that play where some of the kind of more reasonable judges and so on 
are obviously starting to think, actually, have we got this all wrong? Have, you know, are we making a terrible mistake here? Is Are we being lied to? Which is basically what they're being told. You know, these women who, the young women who claim that all these people are witches, are they just making it up? Um, but it's almost gone too far by that point to pull back because to pull back means to recognise that you that you as the instrument of justice, as the judge, as the supposedly kind of unimpeachable perfect person are flawed, that your judgment is flawed, that your grip on reality or on the truth is not uh, totally grounded. Um, and I suppose, and you could say that's the thing that happened to McCarthy. I mean, McCarthy was supposedly sort of holier than now. You know, he was the one who was uh, almost above reproach in a sense. And yet, of course, he turns out to be very much not above reproach. And, w- and when he's in that televised situation, he comes across incredibly badly. He's awful when he's put on the stand himself. He's slurring his speech because he's been drinking. I mean, one article I read about this was saying the ironic thing was, you know, he was always uh, waving around these lists of people um, claiming they were all communists. Now, some of them might have been communists. Some of them were on that list for other reasons, one of which uh, was alcoholism. And he would almost certainly have found himself on the same list if that had been investigated. I suppose that's that idea, again, that you have with John Proctor. No one is perfect. No one is kind of no one deserves to have every recess of their personality and their past and their beliefs and their innermost uh, thoughts and feelings laid bare like that. Um, Because who would kind of, other than probably Jean-Luc Picard, who would sort of survive that process? Certainly not Worf. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You know, going back to what you said with the intentions of, you know, like, why was McCarthy doing this or Admiral Satie, like the theatrics of it all, you know, Satie wanted to have it open up the, the hearing. And we, we see this, like the motives, like in the, the crucible, where it points out that the, oh, I forget his character, like he's only accusing his neighbors so that he can gain more land. Right. So there's this ulterior motive. And in the drumhead, Satie, her ulterior motive is she, like you said, feels above the law that she is able and everyone loves her. And it's this power hungry. And same with McCarthy. Like this is truly his time to be powerful. And he can call, I think he said, 600 within one year. Uh, of interrogations and 150 court hearings within one year. I mean, just massive amounts. And so his name was always in the public eye. And like I said, this theatrics. And so the motivations behind it, I think, are very stark. And how can you identify what are the true motivations and not just flippantly ignore them? I think that's something that we need to try and learn because in our day and age, we have people in the media, well, they're trying to draw our attention away from this. And you can put in as many scenarios as you want. Like, where are we being frenzied? Where are we looking at, which means what are we missing or vice versa? Are we really, you know, seeing and identifying the ulterior motives behind those who are trying to get us frenzied up. Absolutely. And I guess that idea of motive is key. I mean, it it reminded me as well. I mean, I've gone on about this at length on this podcast. Uh, People are probably sick of it. But, you know, when I was doing my research into the occupation during the war in the Channel Islands, the, the reasons that people would 
end up being informed on to the to the German police. You know, and it's not a dissimilar situation in a sense. You know, you're informed on German police. You could end up in a camp. You could end up dead in the same way as in Salem. You could end up being hanged. You know, the consequences are unusually severe in a situation like that. And you do find people just settling old scores, you, you know, informing on their neighbours because they don't like them, uh, using it as a way of exerting terrible power in a sense. So, so you've got the system itself in a sense, I think with the Salem witch trials in the crucible, there's this sense that the system itself is terrifying and dangerous and actually no one can control it ultimately because, because there's something inherently mad in that system because of the way that it's set up. Um, that basically almost the, the more that someone protests their innocence, the more guilty they seem to be somehow. There's, 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 there's a kind of, um, there's almost a kind of paradox in it. But there's also, you're right, this question of the motivation. And in the crucible, I would say the motivation of some of the people making charges is is questionable, as you say. I mean, the judges themselves, I don't feel that is so much the case. The, the judges seem to be more kind of misguided in a way. Uh, and also, as I say, sort of swept up in all of this. Admiral Satie as well, I think, is not, as much as she likes the theatrics of it, I think she is genuinely misguided. I mean, I mean, now and then you sort of wonder, you sort of wonder when she puts Picard on the stand, does she really think he's doing something? Does, does she really think he's part of a Romulan plot at that point? Or is she just trying to punish him for uh, going against her? But at the same time, her kind of, she does believe in her narrative, if you know what I mean. I think she does, she, she's a sort of dangerous crusader. She's not so much a political opportunist in the way that McCarthy was. Not to say that McCarthy didn't believe they were communists and so on, but McCarthy was using this whole project to advance his own career. I mean, it made him, you know, it made him a, a household name, you know. Um, he, he was, he was doing well out of it and he was good at the kind of poker side of it. He was good at the kind of performance side of it. He had won, uh, before he went into politics, he was a sort of high stakes poker player and won huge sums of money, um, paid his way through law school, I think, playing poker, basically. So it gives you an idea that, you know, this is someone who's quite kind of um, used to the idea of bluffing his way, bluffing and blustering his way through something. Um, absolutely a political opportunist who's kind of using this situation to his own ends and frankly, a bully. And it's interesting what has to kind of come around ultimately to take that person down is that their own motive has to be impugned. So when we keep coming back to this idea of interrogating not just what someone's done, and obviously what McCarthy had done was awful in terms of the consequences for people's lives, but also kind of what their own motivation is really, you know, what sort of a person they are. And again, you almost need someone more um unimpeachable than they are to do it. So Satie seems pretty unimpeachable. She's got this great record. She's a sort of elderly admiral, but you've got Picard, who is the sort of heart of decency and honesty and so on, who can do that. With uh, McCarthy, I mean, I mentioned what happened in this kind of televised TV uh, business, but his star was sort of already slightly on the wane by then. And a big part of that was um, Edward Morrow, the, the broadcaster, had um, dedicated an episode of his programme. He had a programme called See It Now to McCarthy and basically just taking him down. And Morrow was absolutely like Picard, the sort of voice of integrity, the voice of reason, this kind of, um, you know, almost a sort of uh, stand-in for all that was sort of decent and um, honest and reliable and trustworthy. All those things that we sort of wish that journalism represented today and that, that typically we kind of feel that maybe it doesn't. 
But he, at the end of this whole episode, he delivered an address direct to camera, basically about McCarthy, sort of speaking to the nation almost like a, almost like a sort of patriotic, uh, presidential address or something, basically denouncing this man. And he said, we cannot defend freedom abroad by deserting it at home. So there was this kind of real exhortation to people to, turn away from this man, to turn away from this wrongdoing. Just as we have Picard saying to Satie, you know, end this now, this is wrong, what you're doing is wrong. Someone basically, or John Proctor in The Crucible, standing up and saying, um, this is, you, you know, I'm morally appalled by this, essentially, and I'm a good person and I can see that this is bad. So I want to ask you, because I'm feeling like in both the drumhead and the crucible and almost with the McCarthyism, like the ending seems so anticlimactic. Like we have Admiral City and uh, it was the Admiral Thomas Henry who just sort of walks out and it's like, okay, well, but what's going to happen to her? I mean, yeah, she truly did believe that she was doing right, but does that make her actions right? And like you said with McCarthy, you know, that one televised, it's like, you know, have some decency that sort of somehow woke people up. And then what happened or with the crucible? Okay, we're not going to hang the people. So now what? It seems like in these three examples, for what happened, it seemed very anticlimactic. And I wanted mm. to see your take on that. I think that's an interesting point. I mean, in The Crucible, uh, John Proctor does get hanged. Right. Sorry, spoiler alert <laughs> at the end. Uh, so there's an element of like, it doesn't, although there is a little note. I don't know how they played this in the film, but in the play script, there's a little note at the end sort of saying it didn't go on much longer beyond this. Basically, it was sort of beginning. To, and you sense that in the final act of the play that it's kind of, the uh, enthusiasm for all this is slightly waning already, like it's going to sort of almost burn itself out. I mean, with McCarthy, it, it didn't it didn't bring an end to it altogether. You know, it kind of he, he petered out, but I think he lost his credibility. I think that's the thing, and it's a quite a he maybe he that he was a very powerful, a very dangerous, a very terrifying figure. And one of the things that Arthur Miller writes about in that essay is how McCarthy was this. Um, that because we see him as this sort of ridiculous figure, it's hard to kind of recognise what a scary figure he was and what a powerful figure he was at that time. And basically, he kind of lost his power because people saw that he was, he's almost the emperor with no clothes. They saw that he was not this kind of authority, uh, this sort of moral authority that he was representing himself as being. And therefore, he lost his kind of, um, he, he lost his status in a sense. And it's very interesting that Admiral walking out is apparently what happened to McCarthy, not in some grand way like that. But basically what would happen is, uh, well, first of all, he was censured. So he was, so the Senate uh, sort of formally rebuked him. And it's interesting, Picard uses that word censure in that speech that he quotes from Admiral Satie, which I've always thought is weird because you feel like really he means censored. When he said, he said the first speech censored and, you, censured, and you think, well, does he mean the first, is this about freedom of speech? But actually saying the first speech censured is, is something slightly different, but it kind of struck me, maybe that's a deliberate sort of echo of the fact that that's what happened to McCarthy is there was a vote in the Senate uh, and by 67 votes to 22, um, they condemned what he'd been doing. So that kind of massively undermined him. But he didn't go away altogether. He was still there in the Senate. But apparently what would happen is when he would stand up to speak, um, 
lots of senators would just happen to go and take a lunch break or they'd go to the toilet or they'd kind of, you know, without there being some big grand thing, he lost his capacity to hold a crowd. He lost that kind of uh, ability to command an audience because people would just, they were over him by then. You know, he'd kind of, he'd lost that power. He'd lost that kind of um, status. And I suppose that is sort of what we see with City. I wonder about the ending of the drumhead. It feels a little bit easy to me. I think there's also an argument. I mean, I saw Keith DeCandido on his blog is quite critical of this episode. This is an episode a lot of people love, you know, sort of top top five, top 10, next gen or whatever. He was quite critical of this episode and particularly the ending. And I think he has a point in a way that really uh, what does it for Admiral Satie is Picard kind of hits her with her daddy issues effectively. And she just completely freaks out and crumbles. And that does always strike me as a little bit strange. And it's not even some great point of principle that unmasks her. It's that she she gets emotional and she sort of, you know, is on the verge of tears and she sort of starts saying, don't you dare talk about my daddy like that. And it's sort of, it, that, it ridicules her. Do you know what I mean? She loses her authority because she sounds like a little girl almost. And there is a bit of an element of you know, is there something problematic in that? Is there something problematic in the kind of gender politics of it? I mean, you could say it's quite progressive to have this character be a woman and, uh, you know, to have this kind of strong, commanding, antagonistic character that is a female character. But at the same time, she does turn out to be the villain. She does turn out there's something in that um, at the very end where Worf says, I, I helped her, I believed her, I did not see what she was. And they've been invoking witchcraft. It almost sounds like she's the witch. You know, she's the witch who's got a, who ought to have been burned at the stake somehow. Um, and is there something slightly kind of sexist in the way that the way that she's defeated is by basically saying, uh, it, it, it's by sort of playing on the fact that she's this woman who's obsessed with her father in some way. There, there seems something quite humiliating about that. On the other hand, you could say, you know, McCarthy was defeated because he went on TV and he seemed drunk and he was slurring his speech and he was kind of incoherent and, you know, but he kind of made a fool of himself in a way. Picard, not deliberately really, but effectively brings out this ridiculous response from her and that's what does for her. And I can understand completely why Keith DeCandido felt that this was not a good, not a satisfying ending to the story. And I think, it, I think it's an interesting episode. I think it's an interesting story. Uh, I quite like the fact it takes a little while to get into the kind of meat of the story insofar as the first act really seems like a more typical mystery or procedural. And then it's at the end of that first act, you get this sort of, duh, 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 there are more spies, are there, aren't there, you know, what's going on on the Enterprise? Um, and so it takes it quite a while to get into the sort of meat of the story, really, and the allegory. And then it sort of has to wrap it all up very quickly. And I think arguably it is a little bit anticlimactic. On the other hand, we sort of knew something, we, we knew she was going to fall apart one way or another. They kind of get her out of the way as a beautifully directed shot, I think. I mean, Jonathan Frakes directing this episode does an amazing job, I would say. In that final confrontation between Picard and Satie, um, there are two really amazing shots, I think, that Frakes puts in there. First of all, when Picard gives his long speech, he has this beautiful sort of tracking shot that starts quite wide and then moves sideways past all the heads of the audience watching him and then very gradually goes in closer and closer and closer until it ends up in a kind of mid shot uh, where Picard has all this sort of status and authority and he kind of is all, not quite looking at the camera, but almost sort of looking to the camera. So very sort of authoritative. And then with Satie, conversely, you have this moment where 
after the Admiral walks out, the hearing kind of comes to an end and then everyone walks out and the camera starts quite close on her and then pulls away as you, uh, as all these people are leaving, she's sort of being abandoned, All her, like her power is sort of draining away from her because her power is these people, just as in the Crucible, you know, the power of the kind of imagined witchcraft is all about sort of everyone believing in it. And if they stop believing in it, it doesn't work anymore. Um and the shot gets wider and wider and wider. She gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And also, he Frakes pulls the camera up into the ceiling. So she starts looking smaller and smaller and smaller. So she does end up sort of looking almost like a powerless child. So I think, yes, in some ways, as written, it's slightly anticlimactic. But I feel like the way it's directed, I think, does a good job of trying to get as much as possible out of that in a way. But maybe these situations are kind of... Because really what you've got in these stories is... Uh, a setup where everyone goes along with something, even though it's kind of mad. And then eventually there's an element of disillusionment and people fall away from that belief. And that it's not that they necessarily turn on it and burn the whole thing down in some great cathartic act. It's just that they step away from it, that their kind of eyes are opened. A bit like Worf at the end of the episode saying, I, you know, now I see what was going on, but I was kind of blinkered. I was blinded. Um, and maybe that is a slightly anticlimactic process of losing confidence in something. Uh, and yet, over and over again, that is kind of how it happens. Yeah, I absolutely do agree with you in that that we see, like you said, the way that it's shot. And I agree with you, Jonathan Frakes does an amazing job. Um, but yeah, Admiral City, the people are leaving, we see them. And at the same time, like you said, the camera is moving up. So she is basically belittled. And then to add on to what Worf's uh, talking to Picard and is saying, you know, I think that people will not be so ready to trust her in the future. And that that is, you know, that power that she wanted that people trusted her like that was her motivation like her intention was look at me not so outstandingly but just that she had this power and that she could make a difference quote unquote uh, whether that be for the good or for the bad and so in life as you're saying people will follow 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 until something happens that maybe wakes them up and was like, oh, this isn't exactly the direction that I want to be going. So I'm going to readjust. And that many times in life that that will, will just make an adjustment, change our lives. Um, whether it happens to all of us as a city, state, country, like, you know, I think it just sort of depends. And when we wake up and when we decide to change our, own thoughts and actions that will cause that. And so if everyone doesn't do that and have that aha moment at the same time, that it is going to be a little anticlimactic because some people will change their mind or opinion this year and maybe next year others. So it's not a real decisive aha, this is the end. There's also a sense, I suppose, the anticlimactic nature of it is almost made the point in that final scene between Picard and Worf, which again is a sort of great... I mean, I sort of think people always cite this as a great Picard episode. I kind of feel like Picard is is good, obviously. I mean, I mean Patrick Stewart is great, but Patrick Stewart is always great. Picard doesn't... He He's very good. He's very decent. He's very honest, but he never really rises above this quite calm, unflappable 
quite sort of low key Picard. We do, we don't get Patrick Stewart sort of really ramping it up, if you know what I mean, in this episode. So in some ways, it doesn't feel like so much of a stretch. I think it's a really great Wharf episode because I think we actually see a bit more development for Wharf in a way. Um, but really, the point of that final scene is Picard is saying to Worf, you know, he says not all villains are twirling their moustaches. It's not all about the high stakes drama. It's not all kind of really big and brash and obvious. And then he ends brilliantly on this classic Star Trek split infinitive saying, um, vigilance, Mr. Worf, that is the price we have to continually pay, which is a sort of weirdly awkward line to end an episode of Star Trek on, um, not least because of the split infinitive, but it's also kind of emblematic of that idea, isn't it? Sort of saying that um, it's not a sort of strong bang ending. It's a sort of slightly thoughtful, slightly kind of, you know, this sort of, we're going to continually be vigilant. There's a kind of sense of this is something that just goes on and on in the background and we have to kind of be aware of it. And Picard is the one who, you know, probably because he reads history and he knows what's what's what and what's going on, is a little bit more attuned to it, a little bit more conscious maybe than... um, you know, someone like Worf is. But so I think it's quite interesting, that idea that this is not just something that happens and then we f- can forget about it. And I suppose, you know, you could argue, okay, the crucible happened, people believed in witches. That was mad. Uh, we don't believe that anymore. Most people in the 1950s probably would have thought ostensibly this is ridiculous. And, and there is something about that play that is, on one level, it is kind of ridiculous. Uh, but at the same time, it's sort of believable that those people believe it and that in itself is terrifying. But then look, in the 1950s, you have the same thing happening again, to some extent, not the same thing, but, you know, elements of this kind of hysteria, elements of, I guess we might talk about moral panic, you you know, these kind of moments where people freak out one way or another uh, over these kind of issues. And it does become very kind of black and white. It does become this sort of diabolical thinking, uh, as Arthur Miller calls it. And really what's needed is to kind of step back a little bit. And also, I mean, the end of McCarthy was not the end of even the House uh, Un-American Activities Committee because a member of my family was um, deported from the United States in 1960 for attending a protest in uh, Berkeley, I think, in California, because the House of Un-American Activities uh, Committee was sitting then, again, you know, weeding out communists and so on. And a load of the students there, she was a graduate student, I think, at the time, went to protest, basically, and picketed the, the committee, because by this point, I suppose it had lost credibility to some extent, but it was still going on. Um, And it's been in my mind in the last week, because we've been seeing all these scenes of police brutality and so on. uh, What happened at that protest was the the police turned um, fire hoses on the protesters and tried to wash them down the steps of this, I don't know what it was, the city hall or whatever. Um, And what happened was uh, this person that I knew um, saw a woman being dragged by the hair by a policeman uh, dragged by down the steps um, and went up and tried to intervene. The policeman punched her in the face and broke her teeth. And then she was uh, subsequently arrested, I think, and deported, basically. And I remember her telling me, you know, she was put on this boat, basically, back to England. Uh, and there was someone from the CIA or something, some sort of shady character, basically, just ca- coming on board and checking that she was in her cabin before the boat set off to sort of get rid of her. So she was obviously one of those people who would have been, <laughs> you know, on one of these lists or, you know, whatever it was, needed to be kind of got out of the country by that point. And, you know, this was some years later. This was after, I think, uh, McCarthy uh, had even died possibly by this point, certainly wasn't at the height of his power. So, you know, these things do continue. And obviously, um, 
we're living in a sort of post-Cold War world, but there are other areas where maybe our anxieties and our terror and our kind of responses like that are very heightened. If you think of something like terrorism, it's probably the closest equivalent in the sort of modern world, really. Um, and the sort of, again, I suppose, with with potential terrorists and, and issues around terrorism, these sort of questions of what kind of evidence do you have against someone? How, I mean, something like Guantanamo Bay or the, these these kind of uh, institutions and so on. How much information do you have? Is it about the kind of, is, is it about someone's beliefs? Is it about their actions? Is it, you, you know, what's the kind of balance there? Because we do want to keep people safe and so on. But at the same time, we don't want to, as Edward Morrow was saying, uh, abuse those rights that we supposedly are acting to protect. These, these things that we believe are kind of, um, uh, you know, sort of inviolable rights, really. Um, and one of those things, you know, certainly, really for the you know it's not just freedom of expression but kind of freedom of belief all the all these kind of freedoms basically that the state kind of can end up trampling on its own citizens in a way to for fear of this uh this terrifying other and i suppose that's the that's the balance that's that's out of kilter um in these situations i mean there might not have been any witches in salem there were communists in the united states but probably not that many spies i mean you know there might have been people who believed in communism or interested in communism but the number of kind of uh actual da- you know dangers to national security was probably much smaller than this kind of circus made it seem to be i mean wharf says to picard you know we do have enemies we must seek them out and of course you know picard is capable of of taking sort of military decisions but it's about keeping a sense of perspective i suppose keeping a sense of uh, again, the idea of overreaching, you, you know, are we kind of behaving in a proportionate way? Are we sort of respecting the laws that we claim to be upholding? Uh, even to the point of, you know, taking the fifth, taking the seventh guarantee, which is what Riker advises Tarsis to do. You know, you cannot legally uh, assume that because someone refuses to answer a question, that means that they're guilty. That's not that's not acceptable. That You know, our legal systems are built on that principle. And yet kind of psychologically uh instinctively people think oh they pled the fifth they must be guilty um and it's that kind of it's the balance i suppose between the sort of more reasoned idea of, of justice uh which sometimes may let people let guilty people go i mean that's the danger that's the risk isn't it that you take and the more kind of uh the zealots and the kind of um more uh fanatical approach to justice which runs the risk of hanging innocent people or ruining their lives well and i think we see that in the drumhead when Worf is you know talking with picard and to your point i do believe this is a very good Worf development episode instead of a typically known as a picard one but Worf is like well why should we why is he worried if he didn't do anything then he should be answering the questions You know, it's that idea of, well, you're not doing anything wrong, so we can do this. And that mentality that so many people have, and it's like, well, you're losing your freedoms. Well, if you haven't done anything wrong, then what's it to you? You know, just be open. Okay, I will be open, but don't lose my freedoms in the the point of this. And we've got Picard standing up for that, that like, yeah, these freedoms that we fought for, that we believe that every person should have in the Federation. These are freedoms that we need to uphold and not just give away 
in the saying, well, if you're innocent, then dot, dot, dot. It's a very sort of classic next gen episode, I suppose, in that sense, isn't it? It's quite high minded. It's quite principled. We do get this the sense of sort of Picard at his most, um, as I say, sort of morally unassailable somehow. Uh, it's a very different it's not a Deep Space Nine episode, if you know what I mean. It's kind of emblematic of that era when everything was quite, uh, in Star Trek, seemed quite clear cut and quite, quite sort of, ironically, quite sort of black and white in a way. Not black and white in the sense of good and evil, but in the sense of kind of, uh, people, you know, Starfleet and Picard and so on were kind of uncompromised. The, 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 the compromised characters come from outside. So interestingly, Satie, although she's described as an admiral, we don't see her in uniform. And I wonder whether that is a kind of deliberate choice that she's not, we don't sort of think of her as a bad admiral somehow, though presumably she is effectively, uh, because she comes in these, uh, so rather quite striking, quite, um, dramatic civilian outfits, if you know what I mean. Um, and I wonder what the thinking behind that was, or if there's, or, or if there's a kind of in-universe explanation for that, you, you know, maybe she's retired and she's not, um, doesn't wear a uniform anymore or whatever it is. Yeah. They did bring her out of retirement. You know, oh, she says that. She, You're right. Okay. Yeah. When she comes on and she's like, well, let's get you settled into your quarters. No, they brought me out of retirement for this. So let's get to work right now. I just wonder what the sort of, the, the, the impact of that in terms of she's not at this point a Starfleet officer in a Starfleet uniform doing this. She's sort of, she's sort of an outsider herself somehow. Um, and I don't know what impact that has. And similarly in the crucible, you've got this idea of this sort of the judges coming from other towns or the people coming from outside to judge this community and this, you know, do they know the community? There's a kind of an interesting parallel there as well. You know, she has to sort of get to know the enterprise as a community um, and who to trust and who to work with and so on in the same way as the judges are sort of coming in. They don't know who goes to church every week, who does this, who's got a grievance with this person. They sort of got to get to grips with that community and that world that they're, um, that they have to understand in order to be able to pass what's really going on couple points to going back to Admiral Satie with her dress. I think you're right because they have her in very flowy, a flowy dress. Um, it is red signifying some power position. Um, but they, the way that she is dressed, I think you're right, does show more of her femininity, which you talked about with the, uh, the one article was that or? Blog. Uh, Keith DeCandido's blog yes. was sort yeah. of questioning that Which side of it. Yeah. I had never thought of that, but there might be a relationship between her being so feminine as opposed to everyone else in their uniform. So maybe there is something to that. Interesting. And to your point of the outsiders coming in, we definitely in the crucible, we, it actually happens twice because they bring in Hale, I forget his first name, uh, the expert on witchcraft and, you know, and he's, you know, looking at interviews and talking to people and he's really getting to know the town. But these events keep happening and the women are saying, oh, this person is, you know, got the devil with him. And so then they bring in a second set, I guess, Supreme Court judges or whatever of the land. And they 
sort of trust Hale's judgment at first. And you can sort of see that with Satie and what she does with like Worf. Well, we like Worf and, you know, he's a great investigator and we want to work with him. But then it sort of falls apart. And just like in the Crucible, like those main judges stop listening to the Hell character because the Hell is sort of seeing, you know, what's going on and that it's going too far. One of the things that I think is works quite well about the Crucible is that there are these different levels of authority or different levels of, of these judges and that they're not necessarily all completely on the same page. And I suppose you do see that in the drumhead in that you've got this other admiral who I don't think ever speaks, as far as I can remember. Uh, you, you know, mainly we, we see him walking out. That's, that's this kind of main sort of contribution. Um, and, and that is, I suppose, a moment of, high drama in a way but it, it it's very much all about this one crusading figure Sati, and it's about her personality and her own foibles and her own weakness i mean the situation in the crucible doesn't fall apart because of the judges it's not that the judge damforth who is the kind of higher authority the higher judge in the sense that comes in later is corrupt or uh that there's anything particularly wrong with him if you know what i mean that 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 is why it sort of starts to fall apart to the extent that it does or at least the cracks start to show it's more that the procedure itself gets so out of hand and so insane and so many people are, are sucked into it and so many people are starting to potentially die as a result of it and so many people are perjuring themselves and lying in order to avoid that uh fate that it, it's kind of like a runaway train somehow I think with Satie, it's much more, she's not a moustache twirling villain, but at the same time, even in saying that, Picard is basically saying, yeah, she's a villain, uh, you know, and, and in the episode, she is the villain. And one of the things I quite like about the episode, as I say, is in that first act, she doesn't seem like a villain at all. She seems, it seems like this is going to be a story about a spy, uncovering a spy, and that the villain is going to be the spy. So the, the episode, I think, quite cleverly sort of draws the viewers in into that faulty mindset, if you know what I mean, in the way that it's structured. Um, but by the end of it, she has been revealed very much in, to the extent that McCarthy is a sort of villain of 20th century American history. She is the villain of this episode and Picard is pretty much um, saying that. But again, pointing up this idea of the sort of subtlety of the villain who doesn't seem like a villain. And again, you could say that is a theme that is very much there in The Crucible as well, because of course... This idea of who is guilty, who is innocent, who is bewitched, who is not themselves, who is untrustworthy. I mean, you know, going back to the Bible, uh, the, the devil as being this subtle character who can kind of influence people and kind of mislead people and trick them. There's that sort of element there of, of, of subtlety versus the more sort of obvious or more overt. And one of the things that I thought was quite interesting is this, I think, is the last episode of Next Gen that Ron Jones, the composer, wrote the music for. And famously, Ron Jones was fired by Rick Berman because they had a disagreement about Ron Jones sort of felt the music should be quite um, sort of in your face, should kind of not necessarily draw attention to itself, but it should be quite sort of active as a participant in the storytelling. Berman felt the music should be more background, really, and you shouldn't really notice it. And it is quite striking in this episode, there's a point... Um, relatively early on when when they start investigating Tarsis and they I think discover that he and he has taken the fifth at this point which we know Picard is or the seventh whatever it is Picard is sort of saying we can't assume anything from that but there's it, it gives grounds for suspicion 
And Worf, in this slightly creepy, very McCarthyist way, uh, starts telling all his security staff who suddenly appeared from nowhere, um, okay, you, you're going to go and sort out the lie detector test. You're going to speak to all his school friends. You're going to, you know, sort of do all of this quite detailed background, find out who his friends are, find out anyone who knows him. There are all these questions about what, who did he socialise with, which all, again, very much tie into this kind of McCarthyist uh, idea of you know, your associations, your friendship groups, your social networks, all these kind of things. But at the same time, the way it's written and the way it's performed, it's quite, again, quite sort of low key. It's not, it's not pantomime. Do you know what I mean? It's not, it's, it's not obviously morally wrong, but the music is really sinister. And you can't help thinking, you know, is this the sort of thing that, that Berman was maybe saying is that Ron Jones is basically scoring this scene to say, you know, wake up, uh, <laughs> look what the hell is going on here. What Worf is doing here is not good. This is not okay, guys. You know, this is not all right. We don't do this. Um, so the music is sort of overstating the, what, what is written and performed almost as subtext. And in a way, you could argue the music is therefore making the precise opposite point of what Picard is trying to make and what the episode is trying to make, which is that these things can be subtle. They can be sort of nuanced. They're not even always as obvious as McCarthy, who was a bit of a, uh, as much as he was a figure of terror, he was a big, larger than life um, character. Uh, they might be more kind of insidious. They might be more kind of banal in a sense um, and equally or, or, or even more dangerous. So I sort of wonder, is is there a sort of tension in the episode between these two things, the kind of more overt and uh obvious and the more kind of subtle and uh kind of less obvious talking about the twists that happen like admiral Satie supposed to be you know the good one coming in but then she ends up being the villain like there's this twist sometime in the episode and i feel like in the crucible that twist happens sort of undeceptively in that the girls, well, according to the the movie, they start out, the movie starts out with them in the forest around a dance, or around a fire, dancing and with what we would say voodoo dolls uh, and bringing uh, objects of who they want to fall in love with or them to fall, the man to fall in love with them, you know, all these girls and then we see uh, the main character, is that Abigail, mm. I think? Yeah. And she drinks some of the blood of this bird that they brought, and one of them strips down, and so they're just... And then we have one of the uh, guys from the village or whatever looking for one of his daughters and witnesses this. And so that's sort of the beginning where it's like, all of these girls, in his mind, were practicing witchcraft. And so they should be the guilty party. But then throughout, it twists. And now they're the ones that are receiving revelation from God on who is practicing witchcraft or conversing with the devil. Like there was that change, which I found so interesting because they really should have been the guilty party if they were practicing witchcraft, which all evidence states. But then we get this twist where they're no longer the villain. And really what it turns out to be, I think, Certainly on a reading of the play, I'd say this is the, the very strong implication, though it's maybe never 100% 
certain exactly what's going on, is that they're, well, well to begin with, are they practicing witchcraft seriously or are they just, is, is it just a bit of a game? Do you know what I mean? Are they just kind of mucking around? And there's always this sort of question, how seriously is anyone taking it? But what they find is they find a witchcraft of a different kind, which is they find the ability not to, as they accuse, there's another character, is her name Mercy? Mercy Ward? Anyway, the character who's the sort of servant of John Proctor, who is uh, sort of part of that group, but, but on the periphery. And there's this incredibly dramatic scene where they this woman, Abigail, gives this amazing performance. I mean, again, you know, going back to this idea of these kind of perf- the performative nature of these characters, whether it's Satie or McCarthy or whatever. Um, in The Crucible, it's actually not so much the investigators. The investigators are quite sort of staid and serious and, and relatively kind of by the book. They're a bit more sort of Picard-like in that sense. But this woman, Abigail, is the one who has sort of created this whole act of theatre around herself and around herself as this kind of innocent character, even though, as you say, initially she was one of the ones who was, you know, up to no good in the woods kind of thing. Um, and this woman who is try- who is coming and, and trying to say to the court, look, uh, this we, we were lying. It wasn't true. We weren't really in touch with the devil or whatever. You know, I, yeah, I made things up. I said what I was told. Yes, I fainted, but I was. it was kind of a pretense. Um, she then turns on her and basically accuses her of trying to possess her and sort of saying, you know, keep this idea that people can kind of send their spirits out into other people. And suddenly these girls whip up this kind of frenzied scene, which is very dramatic and very kind of intense and quite scary, frankly, uh, where they're accusing this poor girl of doing some, of, they're, they're, they're acting the victims and, and sort of, imagining into being this terrifying thing that's happening which this girl is saying i'm not doing anything i'm not you know you're lying it's none of it is true i'm not i'm not doing it but they kind of conjure this magic so that's the thing is they're not participating in witchcraft literally but they discover a different form of witchcraft which is basically theater and the ability to manipulate and to control and to deceive people uh and arguably that to some extent is what mccarthy was doing as much as he was digging up uh you know his communist witches or you know capturing his communist witches to burn them he was performing a kind of sleight of hand performing a kind of theater performing a kind of bewitching uh of his own um and that ultimately is the thing that has to be taken down that has to be challenged that has to be uh put a stop to that's the real kind of evil that's the real witchcraft is the ability of people to uh manipulate others to control others to convince them that what's wrong is right and to convince them to see things in very black and white terms, to convince them to see the other as their enemy, uh, to convince them to distrust, to throw away their um, reservations, to ignore their own laws to some extent, to kind of um, throw away their decency. You know, as that man said to him, you know, have you no decency to kind of put all of those good qualities of themselves to one side, just as in the crucible, you know, people are uh, deliberately lying in order to try and save their own skins, quite understandably. And there's this real question for John Proctor, what's the right thing for him to do? Is it to save his own life and be there for his wife and his children? Or is it uh, ultimately what it comes down to for him, which I think is quite interesting. And again, it relates very much to the um, McCarthy hearings, is he gets to a point where quite 
kind of morally crushed, he decides he will lie and he will say, yes, OK, I, I did this. I consorted with the devil. I did all this stuff, even though he knows it's all a load of rubbish. Um, but then when they say to him, OK, that's great. Now, who else was involved? And I want names. Give me the names of your conspirators. And he knows all these other people have been arrested and are, are in this kind of similar situation to him. And that's the thing he just can't do. He can't drag other people down with him. And the same with the McCarthy hearings. It was always about, you know, not just, okay, fine, you were a member of this communist organization. Uh, that's, that's one thing, but who else was there? You know, you know, who were your friends? Who were your associates? Which again, I suppose is one reason that scene, which Ron Jones is kind of sin- sinisterly underscoring is there is something quite chilling to it. You know, Worf saying we're going to go and speak to his school friends because, you know, the, the next step from that is, is, are we just speaking to them to find out more about this suspect or are they suddenly going to be under suspicion as well? You know, if, if, if they were friends with a Romulan spy, you know, maybe they're Romulan spies as well. Potentially everyone can kind of be sucked into this web of suspicion and paranoia. Yeah, we see that. Oh, I don't remember his name, uh, but he was the New York Times guy. And he was like, okay, yes, I confess I was, you know, in the Communist Party. And then they, he kept asking, who else? And he's like, I will not. And they had his quote. And he's like, I will not, you know, give names of who I associated with in any way, form, or anyhow. And it in the crucible, like when the first affliction of the two young ladies who were in this coma state, uh, the the elderly nurse who came to help. Rebecca, yeah. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, because she was there trying to help, and then the fingers went to her and this accusatory nature of it all. Well, because she was there and this girl was able to be healed, she must be doing some kind of witchcraft because this one was healed and the other one, my, my daughter is still in a coma. She was just trying to help, but yet this accusation, and then they ended up getting hung. I mean, this innocent elderly couple that was there, you know, <laughs> just was so terrible. But yeah, the the object of getting others, again, to feed the frenzy, to continue this abuse of power, to continue the socialization and this, like you said, frenzy has to continue. So we just can't stop here. Okay, so we've done 100. Well, we need 101 because we need to get the next, you know, article in the newspaper. We need to get the next time slot on the news. Absolutely. And I think with McCarthy, that was an element of it was the press were really he was courting the press to begin with. And they were complicit in it to some extent in that he was generating amazing political theatre and they were spreading it. They were kind of ramping up that hysteria to somewhat to some extent in the way that the press does often ramp up these kind of moments of moral panic and hysteria. So the press were obviously complicit in this. You know, they were whipping up that hysteria and that kind of uh, mania almost in the way they were reporting it. And then really what did for McCarthy in the end was... A, this sort of public humiliation in a sense, but B, after that, not only were the senators walking out and finding something more important to do when he was making a speech, 
but the journalists were not printing it anymore. They kind of lost interest. Everyone had lost. They'd almost a bit like Wharf being discommended. You know, they turn their backs on him effectively. Just no one really will speak to that person. They're just not interested anymore. Um, and that I think is quite an amazing. There's something quite, I mean, we were saying it was anticlimactic. There's also something quite sort of powerful about that in a sense that that very powerful and dangerous voice just kind of, uh, fades in a way, fades into the distance somehow, fades into insignificance until people just aren't listening anymore. And McCarthy didn't live all that much longer beyond all of this. I mean, his health suffered. He put on a lot of weight. He ended up dying at the age of 48, I think, because he'd kind of, I don't know, he's almost sort of burnt out somehow. That fury, that intense uh, manic fury somehow that kind of fueled all of this um, ran out effectively and people moved on from it and kind of uh, sort of normality returned somehow. Yeah, and combined with, like you said, his heavy drinking. Yeah, that was probably a, a big part of it as well. Because <laughs> he did die of liver failure, I think. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and the, probably the, the humiliation and the, uh, this whole sort of crisis didn't help with that. Um, I, I think, I mean, the drumhead, as I say, a lot of people list this as like one of their top next-gen episodes. I don't think it's quite up there for me. I think it's a good episode. I think it's, it's had some very good moments. Um, I think it's amazing when you discover this was originally going to be a clip show. This was what the producers wanted. They needed to save money. They, they said, do us another clip show like you did in season two. And the writers were like, no, please, please, we don't want to do another clip show. And so Ron Moore came up with this idea for a very easy bottle show that basically would just need a few extra actors and could be shot all on the ship and so on. Um, and then it got handed over to Jerry Taylor, who wrote the script. And I think does a, you know, some reservations aside that we talked about, uh, does a really good job with it. Jonathan Frakes, as I say, I think does a really good job directing it. I mean, I think it's absolutely, to me, it's not like top tier classic next gen, but I think it's really sort of solid, high quality next gen. What about you, Amy? Yeah, this still to me is top tier. Is it? <laughs> when well, I no, think that, that about, fascinates yeah. me because for a lot of people it is, and I've never, I've never quite got it, but, um, to tell me what what is it is it the kind of moral fervor of it that gives it that place it is yes and the wonderful speeches and they just it's sort of bonk bonk on the head like this is wrong and what she's doing and you know when she's like i've taken down bigger men than you picard like that sort of sums up her motivation and her desire for power and that she's above the law type of thing and so it's also a very good episode to put in because of that moral and ideal dilemmas that if you want to show it to anyone who hasn't seen Star Trek, it's very good. We've got the, you know, the moral ideas, like you said, it's a bottle episode. You don't really need to know much about the characters because this episode is so focused on Admiral Satie, which is a secondary character. So we don't need to rely on the major history of Picard and Worf. Like they're actually told, um, you know, Picard's incident with the Borg and Worf's discommendation. So you, you don't even really need to know much about it. So I like that as far as the episode goes. Um, I, I just like the ideas of it and. It's interesting. Um, we also did a quick interview with Spencer Garrett, who plays Simon Tarsus. 
And that was on Earl Grey number 196 uh, when we were interviewing a bunch of people at uh, Star Trek Las Vegas. All right. So Mm -hmm. I have sort of a personal connection there because of Spencer Garrett there. So I really do enjoy the drumhead. And it is one of those episodes that, you know, you get the random question, well, what's a good episode to watch if I've never seen Star Trek? This is one that comes up. Fair enough. Fair enough. And I think, um, Simon Tarsis is actually a great character. I mean, I, I'm always surprised every time I watch this episode, I'm surprised at how good he is because he is this sort of young guy and he, he, and he's quite a weak character within the story, if you know what I mean. But I think he's performed brilliantly and, and written brilliantly, uh, as well. Um, and, it is kind of heartbreaking sort of what happens to him in a way, he, you know, very much as I say, sort of taken, I think, from what happened to this uh, young guy who was kind of publicly humiliated in a sense, even though he wasn't even at the, the committee hearing in the way. Yeah, no, I mean, great speeches, absolutely great continuity as well. I mean, people always say Next Gen didn't do continuity. This is an episode that does brilliant continuity to the point of basically uh, taking the sort of fan criticisms that people might make of Picard or Next Gen, like, you know, why does this show claim to respect the Prime Directive but break it every other week? Okay, so you have a character actually saying, you know, you said you were going to uphold the Prime Directive. What do you call this? Uh, but also the continuity uh, about the Borg and the best of both worlds, uh, you know, tapping into that idea, which we're going to pick up with iBorg and later with First Contact and so on, that there's some sort of unfinished business there, uh, even if Picard is denying it in this instance, even picking up on the continuity with Data's Day and the kind of idea of this relationship with the Romulans and these episodes tying into each other. I mean, this is something that Next Gen doesn't do a huge amount of, but I think works very effectively in this episode. And then absolutely, you're right, that speech, you know, particularly that big Picard speech, um, it is a great speech. But it's interesting, again, for me, it's quite underplayed. If you think compared to, say, The Measure of a Man, get great courtroom drama, quite big speeches, big drama, big sort of intense uh, theatrics in a way, and it's probably quite deliberate and it's quite appropriate, Picard here doesn't go for the big theatrics because his whole point really is to stay small, to stay focused, to stay stay procedural, to stay kind of um, stick to the rules, do the right thing, you know, don't get seduced by the drama, by the theatre of the courtroom, in a sense. Even in that speech, he says, the first time any man's freedom is trodden on, we're all damaged. So there's this sort of sense from the small to the the huge. Do you know what I mean? That these small acts mean have huge ramifications. You could say we're seeing that at the moment with the Black Lives Matter protests and so on. You know, one man's uh, a horrific ending of one man's life stimulating a global response um to 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 a global problem do you know what i mean picard is really saying you, you know we can't afford to hurt one small individual and simon tarsis i think is the ultimate sort of small man in a sense in this situation caught up in it well he's not even really an officer he's this kind of a bit of a nobody frankly on the enterprise and yet he's the one who's going to uh, sort of summon this huge um catastrophic potentially uh sort of tornado almost um into the heart of the ship that's going to kind of threaten everything in a way and threaten people's kind of um you know someone like Worf's sense of right and wrong and you know what he should be doing and it's all going to come from this quite small place and i suppose appropriately patrick stewart does sort of slightly underplay that speech and the episode slightly underplays some of its moments because that's really the point that it's trying to make is sort of stay 
stay small, stay focused. Um, don't get sucked into this kind of over the top theatrical drama because that's where the risk is that you sort of lose your judgment, that you lose your perspective. And that's where these kind of abuses um, take place. Yeah, I think what you're saying is exactly right. Stay small, stay focused. You know, like we said, vigilance, Mr. Worf. Um, what are we doing? We look at ourselves and not making us, <clears throat> they are using that terminology. Well, over there, well, it, when it gets too big, sometimes it feels unmanageable that you can't make a change, that you can't make a difference. But if you keep it small and say, okay, in my actions, in my thinking, what am I doing? Just as Worf has that aha moment, well, no one's going to be able to trust her. I was willing to help her, like recognize where you went wrong and what you can do to change so that we can be vigilant, that it's not going to happen in my thoughts, in my actions, on my watch. And this is a very sort of Star Trek idea, I suppose we could say, you know, the real change comes from within, the real exploration is of ourselves, working on ourselves, improving ourselves, you know, evolving ourselves bit by bit, day by day. And of course, you know, Picard is the guy to give us that message at the end of the day. Well, Amy, it's been an absolute pleasure having you back on Primitive Culture to talk about the drumhead and McCarthyism and the Salem witch trials and, and, and much more. I should say as much as, you know, I said for me, the, uh, the drumhead is not kind of top tier next gen. The Crucible, absolutely top tier, you know, 20th century theatre. So if anyone is, is interested, definitely go and, I was going to say go and read, but if you can find a production of that play, I would say go and go and see it. Not right now at the moment, because there probably aren't any, but you know, or, or go and check out the film. But I mean, I think, uh, and I have to, I've only ever read it. Actually, I've never seen it live on stage, but I can just imagine from reading it that it's a play that probably is at its best in the intensity of a theatre where you've got that real, that, that sense of this, uh, claustrophobia of these situations which you, you you know see again to some extent in the drumhead as well um so absolutely couldn't recommend that one more um but it's been a pleasure having you on the show if our listeners want to get in touch with you um on social media or find out what else you've been up to what's the best way for them to do that well i am on twitter at miss amy nelson and i am on facebook on the babel conference right there our listeners group so you can find me there well, it's been fun talking about the drumhead and witch hunts of various kinds throughout history, but that's not all we've been doing on Trek FM this week. So here's a listen to what else you might have missed out on on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, The Line, a Star Trek Picard podcast. Like you're saying about JL, I remember at the time reading this, Rafi calling him JL, and I remember that feeling weird to me. Like you, the first time it was in the comic, and then I was like, JL, that's kind of casual, but like you said, she kind of talks to that. And but now rereading it, when I got to that, it just makes so much sense because I'm used to it now. It just seems so natural, but at the time it felt a little odd. Earl Grey. This is that McCoy is still alive. Mm-hmm. And he goes and picks up McCoy, and Scotty and McCoy have adventures throughout the galaxy in their own run of no. Then they go and find the Nexus and get and get <laughs> Kirk back and it's the three of them that go. Uh, and they go to Romulus, of course, as well to help out Spock with the reunification. Yeah. 
and then they go to the Genesis planet because obviously there's remnants of it after it blew up and they find some Spock DNA and they use some Borg maturation chamber to make themselves a mini Spock. But it goes wrong, so Spock is only like six inches tall. <laughs> Pocket yes. Spock. And, and McCoy can put him in his pocket all the time. I'd like a base. McCoy him McCoy love he's, that? Got a, yeah. he's got a wee kind of lapel pocket. Yeah, I like this, a breast pocket. We'll call him Spocket. Spocket. Spocket <laughs> in McCoy's pocket. Uh, I like that. Okay. Primitive Culture. A look at history and culture through Star Trek. That whole title sort of feels like the the beginnings of what Roddenberry would do with, with Q and having all those play on Q basically yeah. which I think I think had exactly. you had Mud come back you know more it's almost a shame that Discovery hasn't picked up that and and when they had Harry Mud, mud. In, yeah <laughs> exactly they should have done that they resisted the temptation for the cheap I mean that is as I say there is always a temptation with these things to go for the cheap pun uh, yeah. Sometimes it's the right decision to, to resist. I don't know. Uh, um, I think a cheap pun is the right call every time, Duncan, to be honest. The ready room. What does it mean to be artificial? And when you cross that barrier from being biological mm-hmm. to being artificial, but your your memories have been transferred, how much of who you are is the memory that you acquire over the course of your life and how much of it is the biological system of your body. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favourite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture, and that will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trek.fm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trek.fm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits and more, available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you can find all our details at patreon.com slash trackfm. We'd like to take a moment now to thank our associate producers on Primitive Culture, Amy Nelson, Clara Cook and Tony Black. Amy is a presenter of many other shows on the network, and you can find her on Twitter at at Miss Amy Nelson. 
Clara and Tony were two of the former co-hosts of this show, and they'll be popping back from time to time. You can find Clara on Twitter at at ClaraGeneMC and Tony at at AJBlackWriter. You're blended already.